Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. After second shift, she's stopped to shop for groceries, her snow boots sloshing up and down the aisles, the store deserted, couple stock boys droning through cases of canned goods, one sleepy checker at the till. In the parking lot, an elderly man stands mumbling outside his sedan, all four doors wide to gusting sleep and ice. She asks him, Are you okay? He's wearing pajama pants, torn slippers, rumpled sport coat, knit wool hat. Says he's waiting for his wife. I just talked to her on the payphone over there. He's pointing at the Coke machine. What payphone, she says. That one, he says. It's cold, she says, and escorts him inside. Don't come with lights and sirens, she tells the 911 dispatcher. You'll scare him. They stand together. The checker brings him a cup of coffee. They talk about the snow. So much snow. They watch for the cop. This night, black as any night, or a bit less so. is my neighbor? A lawyer asks Jesus. The author or authors of the Gospel of Luke tell us that Jesus doesn't give a direct answer to this question. He replies with a story. Jesus liked to do this, answer a pretty specific question with a story. 
And over the thousands of years since he did this, people have interpreted these stories in lots and lots of ways. This story, this parable begins, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was traveling a steep and rocky road. It's a short journey, only about 18 miles, but the elevation loss is over 3,000 feet. We can imagine this traveler's ears popping to adjust to the elevation change. We can also imagine his nervousness. The road to Jericho was notorious for its danger, for the bandits who frequently attacked travelers. But our fictional traveler takes this trip anyway. Perhaps he has business to attend to. Perhaps someone he loves is waiting in Jericho. Perhaps he just needs a change of scenery. Jesus doesn't include the reason for the journey in the story he tells. And along this journey, the traveler is stopped by a band of robbers. The robbers take whatever valuables the traveler is carrying. They also take his clothes and beat him. They leave him for dead, naked and bleeding in a ditch on the side of the road. The traveler lays there, hoping that someone will come to his rescue. A short time or a long time later, the story is short on details, a priest comes walking down the Jericho Road. Can you imagine how that traveler's heart leapt for joy when he hears approaching footsteps? Someone might come and rescue him. And it was a priest, a Jewish priest who served at the temple in Jerusalem. Surely this man would come to save him, take him from the ditch and deliver him to the nearest hospital or the first century equivalent of a hospital. But rescue is not what happens next. Jesus says that when the priest saw the dying man, he goes over to the opposite side of the road and continues on his way. He likely feels some pity or concern for the injured man. He might say a silent prayer or hope that someone else would pass by soon and tend to him. But the priest doesn't do anything. Why doesn't he care for this dying traveler? In his telling of the story, Jesus doesn't give a reason. But that hasn't stopped interpreters and scholars from coming up with their own ideas. The most common reason for why this priest doesn't stop is that he is concerned with ritual purity. In the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 19, verse 11, if you're following along, it is stated that a person who comes into contact with a corpse will be considered unclean for seven days. They will not be able to participate in the life of the community for a week. Perhaps the priest in the story thinks the bloodied man on the side of the road is dead or that his death is imminent and unavoidable. If the priest touches the man and he is already dead or dies while the priest cares for him, the priest would not be able to do his job for a week. Perhaps the priest has a really busy week coming up full of services, visits, and family obligations. Perhaps there are already priests at the temple waiting out their own seven-day periods after touching a corpse, and the temple just can't spare anyone else this week. Perhaps the priest does a quick mental calculation and decides that the service that he's planning to offer his community in the next week is more valuable than the comfort he might be able to offer the dying traveler. We don't know. 
The reason that the priest keeps walking isn't provided in the story. This doesn't stop those who value this parable from interpreting this detail of it to serve their own ends. Throughout the history of the Christian church, people have used the example of this priest who passes over to the other side of the road to condemn all Jews. There's a terrible history of interpretation that equates Judaism with strict law following and Christianity with compassion. Not only is this view hateful, inaccurate, and self-serving, there is no evidence that Jesus intended those who heard this story to draw that conclusion. Their interpretation is a perversion of the story and its purpose. Blaming the priest's inaction on his concepts of ritual purity, concepts that are foreign to us, can keep us from self-reflection. We can think, since ritual purity isn't part of my life, surely I wouldn't act like that priest if I was in his shoes. Yet we have ideas about purity. We don't ritualize them in the same way in our culture. They include the five-second rule, practiced in school cafeterias or in other places where if any food dropped on the ground is safe to eat if it's picked up within five seconds or 10 seconds if it's really good food. <laughs> and that's, we know that's not rooted in science. That's just our ideas of what is clean or unclean. Every culture, including ours, has ideas about purity that animate it. What does it mean to be pure? What can, can contaminate us? What contaminates our community or our nation? Croatian-American Christian theologian Miroslav Volf said that especially in situations of economic and political uncertainty and conflict, we will insist on pure identity. If race matters to us, then we will want our blood to be pure, untainted by the blood of strangers. If land matters to us, then we will want our soil to be pure without the presence of others. If culture matters to us, then we will want our language and customs to be pure, cleansed of foreign words and foreign ways. This is the logic of purity. It attends to the notion of identity, which rests on difference from the other. The consequences of the logic of purity in a pluralistic world are often deadly. We have to keep the other at bay, even by means of extreme violence, so as to avoid contamination. It doesn't take a lot of looking to see our cultural notions of purity on display all around us. Our politics are all about the logic of purity right now. Who counts as a real American, whatever that is? We saw purity performed in the Alabama special election this week as a significant number of Republican voters chose write-in candidates. Absent an organized effort, such votes don't elect anyone, but they allow the voter to feel pure, untainted by the sexual assault allegations and hateful rhetoric of one candidate or the political positions held by the other which, with which the voters disagree. The other Alabama senator and so many others acted out of this sort of purity when they cast their ballots this week. And concepts of purity stretch beyond politics and inform so many of our choices. For two years in my early adulthood, I stopped eating apples. 
I had spent a few summers working with farmers and farm workers in central Washington state and saw the horrible conditions endured by people who harvest apples, cherries, hops, and the other things grown there. And so every time I ate an, ate an apple, I visualized people I had met who were sick or suffering because of the way our economy is structured. So I stopped eating apples. I purified myself of that issue. I didn't have to think about it. And it took me too long, way too long, to realize that my action didn't help anyone, actually. I wasn't motivated by compassion, but by purity. My decision not to eat apples didn't improve farm workers' living conditions in the slightest. It only made it so I didn't have to think about it. I wasn't part of some larger effort to change the way food is produced in this country, which that's when boycotts have power, when they're organized and not just one individual acting out of purity. My small choice had no impact other than as a symbolic disconnect, disconnection from the interdependent web of all existence. Confusing compassion and purity is a trap that those of us in privileged positions can often fall into. Not eating apples was not compassion. It was an attempt to free myself from what felt like a contaminant to me and the discomfort posed by being with, in relationship with people who are suffering so I could eat. Distancing ourselves from other suffering and alleviating other suffering are not the same thing. But back to the story. A short time or a long time late after the priest passed by the, our injured traveler, again, Jesus doesn't have a lot of detail in this story, another person comes walking down the road. Again, we can imagine that the injured man might have become excited to hear footsteps approaching, his hopes somewhat tempered after his recent experience. Again, the passerby sees the injured man on the side of the road and goes over to the other side of the road and continues his travelers, travels. Again, the authors of Luke don't explain why the man does not stop. Perhaps the man thinks that the injured traveler was there to entrap passersby. As people would go to the side of the road to offer help, a band of robbers that he was colluding with would prey on the compassionate. We know that this happened. Perhaps the man thinks that the injured traveler somehow deserves his injury. Perhaps the injury was retribution of some sort. All that Jesus says about the second person who walks by is that he is a Levite, a member of a Jewish family whose traditional duties included working in the temple and maintaining cities of refuge. These cities were a refuge for people accused of manslaughter. The accused person who fled to the city of refuge would escape vigilantes seeking revenge, have a fair trial, and be taken care of by the Levites if found innocent. Perhaps the Levite walking down the Jericho Road had business to attend to in a nearby city of refuge, a long list of people to care for, a heavy caseload. Perhaps he sees the injured man on the side of the road and knows he wouldn't be very good at helping him. Perhaps he just has too much on his plate. In addition to the people who are in his professional responsibility, he has aging parents or a child in need of special attention or a close friend in crisis. Perhaps his well of compassion ran dry 
There was just no energy left for this stranger. Sometimes, when we cannot take the compassionate action we might like to, when we just can't stop for the injured traveler on the side of the road, we can take comfort in the knowledge that the universe is not resting on our shoulders. We are not alone. When we reach our limits, it is an opportunity for others to step in. In his lovely book on vocation, Let Your Life Speak, Quaker educator Parker Palmer writes, it took me a long time to realize that although everyone needs to be loved, I cannot be the source of that gift for everyone who asks me for it. If I give love I do not possess, I give a false and dangerous gift, a gift that looks like love, but is really loveless, a gift given more from my need to prove myself than from others' needs to be cared for. That kind of giving is not only loveless, but faithless, based on the arrogant and mistaken notion that God has no way of channeling love to the other except through me. Yes, we are created for community, to be there in love for one another. When we reach the limits of our own capacity to love, community means trusting that someone else will be available for that person in need. As he passes the injured traveler, perhaps the Levite man trusts his community. Perhaps he hopes that there is a benevolent stranger coming up behind him on the road who will be able to help this man. He does nothing. Perhaps the sight of the bloody man in the ditch lingers with the Levite in the days and weeks and decades to come, coming to him in idle moments, in those times when he lists his shortcomings. The image of that man might never leave him. He might always wonder what became of the injured man. A short time or a long time later, another person comes down the road. Again, the injured traveler hears the approaching footsteps and begins to hope. The person who approaches this time is a Samaritan, a member of the group that stayed in the land of Israel when it was overrun by foreign invaders. In Jesus' time, Samaritans were considered impure. Their worship was a mix of Jewish and Gentile practices. They were the lowest of the low, the enemies of the Jews, the enemies of Jesus' community. They were the opposite of good. This is hard for most of us to grasp now because we're so used to hearing the phrase good Samaritan. I think that's the only time we hear the word Samaritan is right after good. But to the initial audience of this story, a good Samaritan was an impossibility. That the Samaritan is good is a shock to this story's initial audience. This person no one expects anything good from goes to the injured traveler. He is moved with compassion. He cleans the injured man's wounds and bandages them. The Samaritan takes the injured traveler to a nearby inn and spends the night tending to him. The next morning, the Samaritan has to continue on his journey So he leaves two days' wages with the innkeeper and says, please take care of this injured man. Spend whatever you need to. If the money that I have given you is not enough, please spend more. I will repay you. And that is where Jesus ends the story. We do not learn if the injured traveler lives or dies. The rest of the story is left to our imaginings. As he ends the story, Jesus asks a question. Which of these three 
do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer whose question prompted the story replies, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to all who are hearing that story, go and do likewise. May we all go and do likewise. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.